Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Uh, joining me today is Mr. Mark Groman, and he's an internationally recognized expert in privacy and information risk management. Now, that might not sound uh, so exciting or riveting, but hold on. Uh, he was the senior advisor for privacy in the White House, and he had government-wide responsibility for privacy policy, and he chaired the Federal Privacy Council established by President Barack Obama and was a, a very integral part of that administration. Uh, he was the privacy lead on the uh, president's Cybersecurity National Action Plan, and prior to his stint in the Obama administration, uh, he was actually the president and CEO of the Network Advertising Initiative, the first chair, uh, sorry, the first chief privacy officer in the U.S. Federal Trade Commission and Council to Energy and Commerce Committee in the United States House of Representatives, and that's one of the highest, one of the highest um, committees and advisors directly to the president. Uh, so he had a huge, huge role in the United States, uh, in the Obama administration. And uh, the role of senior advisor for privacy, uh, he was actually the first one to fill that position. And uh, since Trump has taken over, uh, this, this role actually hasn't been filled yet. Uh, but why this conversation is so important uh, is for many reasons. So we are going to dig into things like being a parent and understanding uh, your child's security and what type of privacy you specifically have as an individual, as a business owner, as a professional, what happens with your data when you sign into Facebook, what happens with your data uh, when you use Facebook to sign into a third-party app or software, what happens with your information from a legal standpoint uh, and how it's sold. We also talk about things like net neutrality, uh, we talk about the uh, Cambridge Analytica scandal from Facebook. We dig into um, the different types of privacy issues. So we break them down really into two categories. We talk about commercial privacy, which is where your data goes in on platforms like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and whatnot. And then government pri government privacy, and that that can be broken down into civilian government and intelligence. So things like the uh, NSA um, or the FBI uh, or home, Homeland Security. And so we talk about all of these topics. We also get into how data, big data, your personal data is being used by marketers and advertisers. We also talk about how some countries are mishandling and misusing people's privacy and their, their personal information and data. And we talk about how to safeguard yourself, your family, the people around you, uh, and some of the implications of using things like social media on your cell phone versus on your computer. So it's a very in-depth topic. There's a lot that goes into this. Um, I did a few hours of research just to prep for this one uh, because I am not an expert at all in privacy. Uh, and uh, that actually sounds bad, but I'm not actually an expert in understanding privacy laws or um, or the sort of like the moral conversation around it. So I had to do a little bit of background research on this. Um, but Mark is definitely the go-to expert. And this is an incredible in-depth conversation. So I hope you enjoyed. Just before I bring Mark on, quick reminder, 
uh, guys, head on over to Facebook and join um, the Man Talks community there. We've got a really, really great group of thousands of guys from around the world with great conversation. We dig into so many, so many topics that are relevant to you, your health, your family, your profession, your business, and your wealth. And if you want to go further and you want to work with me personally, you can either do so one-on-one uh, by signing up through the through my website, connorbeaton.com, or you can join the Alliance. And that is an incredible group of men that uh, get together for weekly calls and uh, hold each other accountable, uh, allow you to create some goals, set some goals, and hopefully crush them. And there's some great, great men in there with some other great men's coaches like Traver Baum. So without any further delay, uh, please welcome Mr. Mark Groman. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I am really looking forward to this one. I think I said to you before we before we got started. Uh, you know, I was I was doing a lot of research for this show. I realized how big of a topic this actually is, and I feel like you and I could probably sit here for like an eight hour period and talk about privacy uh, and and the ramifications of that. But we have a sixty minute window to cover a bunch of stuff. So let's dive straight in uh, with the question that I ask all of our guests, which is: Tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today? I think I'll share with your audience uh, the story about when I left the White House in January 2017. And I had been working uh, there for just under two years on some pretty intense issues around privacy and cybersecurity uh, surveillance and the like, and having very intense discussions with some of the nation's top leaders on those kinds of issues. And really, it was a, it was an intense two years where I was probably working close to 80 hours a week. And even when I was home, I had multiple devices that connected me and linked me with various individuals across the administration. But when that came to an end in January of 17, you know, I, I suddenly was there again with my family and my son, who was then 12 years old. And I started to observe my son and his peers in the way that they engaged with technology, whether it was uh, their new smartphones, uh, the gaming consoles, or a wide range of other technology, how they were accessing social apps and YouTube binging and gaming and the like. And suddenly, my professional career and expertise in privacy and tech and cyber had a really powerful link to my personal life. And that really sparked my interest in this topic about how this generation of children that we're raising today are engaging with technology and with digital content and gaming and ensuring that we as parents, as dads, uh, are properly interacting with our kids and guiding them as they navigate this digital world. Mm, Yeah, so good. And and, and such a good, such an important and relevant topic right now, because I think that the average person might not know much about some of these topics and and even if they're even if they're studied even if they've you know read the news articles and whatnot it can still seem like a very complex uh convoluted issue sometimes and so you know i i really want to do a few things here today so you know i want to kind of get a sense of what your role was uh at at the white house and kind of talk about some of that to to a certain degree but then i kind of want to go through some of the pieces of you know, just some of the basic pieces like what's net neutrality and some of these other things, just to give the listener an overview and then dig straight into uh, really what you're doing now, which is being a parent, being being someone who's using this technology and seeing your children uh, use technology and, and talk about the future a little bit more. So 
let's let's just start with a, a little bit around your role at the White House. What were some of the responsibilities uh, that you oversaw and and some of like your day to day activities? Because you were the senior advisor for privacy at the White House, and I don't think many people have a context for what that actually is. Sure. So. Uh, in fact, it was a new role. So I was the first ever senior advisor for privacy in the White House uh, in a political role. Uh, and I reported directly to the director of the Office of Management and Budget, which is outside of D.C., one of the less known members of the president's cabinet, but in fact is likely the most powerful member of the president's cabinet uh, because the OMB director controls the federal budget, among other things. And so it put me in a very uh, good good location and a role to help influence policy around privacy and cybersecurity uh, and surveillance issues. My first uh, small assignment when I arrived was to help lead the federal government's response to the OPM data breaches of 2015. I don't know if that's something that you're familiar with or your listeners are, but in 2015, mm-hmm. There was a, a data breach in our Office of Personnel Management where uh, security files on give or take 20 million individuals were hacked and stolen. And so leading that response was a tremendous part of my uh, responsibilities early on in the administration. It was a particularly complicated incident that has potentially significant impacts for individuals. And so uh, it required tremendous amount of work, coordination on issues around um, remediating the technology, understanding the the breach, and understanding how the data could be potentially leveraged or exploited to harm individuals or national security or the like. So that was my first mm-hmm. easy assignment that kept me pretty <laughs> pretty busy for several months. Uh, but I also the portfolio had a full range of issues, and so I worked on issues around the collection of information about people by the US government. So that could involve things around healthcare and signing up for healthcare or even precision medicine initiative where we were working with research facilities to collect data on uh, individuals' health to produce precision medicine and and improve healthcare. Uh, It involved a number of projects around authentication, identity, trying to make it easier for the taxpayers to interface with their government online while also protecting cybersecurity and privacy. Uh, I I also served as the privacy lead on President Obama's Cybersecurity National Action Plan, where I worked with members from the Department of Homeland Security, NSC, uh, NSA, and the like to, to really do a double down and reboot on cybersecurity across the federal government to identify places where we could uh, quickly improve our cybersecurity posture, things like ensuring two-factor authentication across the government, um, strong passwords, administrative controls, uh, to much longer-term planning around uh, identifying the most high-value assets in the government that are the most likely targets for compromise, uh, and developing strategic plans around how to protect those assets in particular. Uh, so I'll pause there. Those are just, uh, you know, a few of the days I had uh, while there working on really significant issues with some of the most dedicated, talented, and smart people I've ever had the pleasure to work with. 
That's incredible, man. I mean, <laughs> just the breadth of things that you had to do. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have imagined actually coming into this conversation that some of those pieces uh, that you were responsible for would would actually fall under your purview. So that's that's pretty incredible to to hear some of those things. Um, I think one of the things that that is maybe a little bit interesting is is something around the lines of how you know big data for citizens is being you know looked at and understood by the government and uh, as as privacy becomes more and more and more of a of a mainstream concern for the for the average citizen uh, how how is the government really responding to some of those pieces because i know that uh, a big thing you know obviously like in 2000 and and one after the you know after the the attack uh, Bush, you know, signed in the U.S. Patriot Act. So, so maybe can you give us some context to how something like the Patriot Act has uh, changed or allowed the government to to work with some of these uh, some of these different circumstances that arise in terms of national security? So, let me unpack your question a little bit and and start out by just explaining, um, in some ways, how I see privacy from the perspective of of an American citizen or consumer. So that we can mm. talk about different different elements of privacy. One element right. uh, is commercial privacy, and I think we'll get to that in a bit. And that's more about the data collection by major companies like Google or Facebook, Apple, Twitter, and the like. Um, but it also does, of course, dovetail into federal government and government collection of data because there is potential for the government to collect and access some of that information. Uh, and then when we turn to the federal government, I just want to um, broadly break it apart into two um, imperfect but larger categories. One is is what I'll, I'm going to generally call the, the civilian government, which is when we interact with, say, the IRS for our taxes or the census uh, or file a complaint with a federal agency. There's a tremendous amount of data collection there, but that has one set of laws. And then what you teed up are questions that are very specific to the collection of information by our intelligence community to protect the United States from uh, terrorists and other kinds of threats. Uh, and so that's that's one subset uh, of the federal government. Uh, and we can and we can dig into that. And so uh, obviously, in this digital world, there's a tremendous amount of data that can offer really important and critical information to the government to, to again, protect our border, keep us safe, uh, and monitor those foreigners. And, and it is foreigners, um, non-U.S. citizens who are um, seeking to, to harm our country and, and hurt democracy and the like. And so we have an apparatus in our intelligence community at the NSA, uh, the um, military intelligence, uh, and uh, a handful of other offices that have special authorities to identify those threats and to gather what we call signals intelligence or SIGINT uh, to, to, to inform us um, about potential threats to the United States. And the, the kinds of authorities have, you know, been expanded over time. Uh, sometimes they get pulled back, depending, you know, in the post-Snowden uh, revelations, there was pushback on certain kinds of collections. But there, there are fairly robust laws in place that I think that our Congress needs to continue to look at, but at the NSA in particular, I know for a fact that they take their jobs seriously and and work to you know use their authorities to to the maximum extent feasible while still protecting you know Americans' constitutional rights 
uh, of privacy and the like. I'll let you, why don't I let you mm. p- pause and poke at that and let me see where you want to take that discussion. Yeah, no, I think that's great because I think I love the first off, I love the way you break down, you know, commercial privacy and then looking at uh, the government side of things with the federal government, civilian government and intelligence, um, because I think oftentimes, again, I'm not well versed in this area. Like, I don't know a ton about this area. Um, it's just based off of, you know, news and reading and and doing a good amount of research coming into this interview. And I think for the average person, sometimes the lines between commercial privacy and the government, uh, you know, the, the, what the government has access to sometimes get blurred. And and so I, I think that maybe what we should do is just look at um, this this side of the federal government and, the, and the, the privacy first and foremost, and then move towards the commercial side. So from from a standpoint, because I know that, you know, after 2001, I think a lot of people were a little hesitant and some, some other people were a little were more OK with uh, some of the components of, of something like the Patriot Act, which which gave, you know, gave the government uh, some more freedom to protect its citizens, uh, to protect our citizens in, in terms of, you know, not not having to necessarily in some cases uh, get, get a warrant and whatnot. But how does it actually play into into the government's collection of personal and private data? I think that's what oftentimes, um, you know, you'll hear conspiracy theorists talk about. Uh, and they, they, they have like a lot of interesting ideas. But where do the rights of the average citizen stand in terms of in terms of something like, you know, a, a government uh, body, a federal government body? trying to collect information or data based on a specific threat. How does how does that work? So first, we'd have to, at least in the United States, distinguish between U.S. citizens or what we call U.S. persons, um, meaning a U.S. citizen or, or lawful legal resident, which are protected by many of our laws, and then other individuals. So in, in, in some jurisdictions, there isn't a distinction. But here, uh, we do have a distinction. Uh, our Constitution uh, applies to U.S. US citizens. Um, lawful residents, but but not necessarily others, and so it's just an important point. Depending on you know who you are and where what country you're a citizen of, and and why you're either within our borders or outside our borders. Uh, but mm-hmm. by and large, when there's a, you know we're looking for specific threats, uh, and so I know that there were there have been major stories about bulk data collection, um, and and some types of collections like that did take place. But there there are questions about actually their utility. In, in protecting the country. And so it's really more about identifying particular individuals or targets who have particular plans or intent to cause harm. Uh, in those cases, efforts are made to, uh, to look for foreign individuals, right? Individuals who are not U.S. citizens um, and to not collect data about U.S. citizens, uh, in particular by the NSA. Certainly, there's what we call incidental collection where you know, if, if a foreigner is speaking with a U.S. person about something, then we might collect data about a U.S. person. But there are protocols in place to to make an effort to limit that. Uh, and so, it, you know, and then but that's also, again, we think we can't look at the United States government as one entity because um, this is where it gets complicated. The NSA, for example, again, is focused on threats by foreign nationals to, to the United States. But the FBI has a separate set of authorities as does the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, and so when you, when you do combine it all together, when you do look at the ability of the entire federal government to collect data and then use it for purposes, um, there, there is a significant, a significant amount of data, data collection that can take place. 
uh, and there are protections in place, but we need to ensure that those protections are truly followed and we need to um, pay close attention to what our federal government does and hold their feet to the fire and ensure that they are not overstepping when they use the authorities they have. Yeah, good. So I think there's there's sort of two questions that come out of that immediately, which is one, what do you think some of the myths are of the average person when it comes to privacy and data collection? And and then secondly, where do you see, uh, either in the past or, or maybe a concern about in the future, where do you see governments starting to tiptoe on that line of crossing uh, public privacy? So, you know, when we when we think about myths, um, I'll I'll just talk about it, you know myths here in the United States, which is as pervasive as data collection is, and as advanced as the capabilities are for signals intelligence and surveillance, uh, the U.S. government is not spying on every citizen and not tapping everyone's line or internet, nor collecting everything. I mean th- that's just not the case. It wouldn't be helpful. It wouldn't be beneficial. So to the extent that, um, you know, you hear those kinds of statements, those really broad statements about, well, everything's being collected by the government anyway, that, that's not the case. I'm not trying to minimize the scope of data collection or the potential uh, for data collection under specific authorities, but, but it, it's not that every phone, every internet, you know, line and every computer is being washed or tapped. Um, that's not the case. And the federal government is not going to be interested in the majority of us. Um, and even if they were, they wouldn't have the capacity or resources to, to collect that kind of information today. I think what we ought to be thinking about going forward, though, from the perspective of both government and private sector, and by the way, foreign governments, let me just tee that up and then we'll, we'll move back. You know, there, there are abuses of technology taking place, and I'll just call out China as an example, where the kinds of surveillance and data collection being done by the centralized government in China, the Communist Party of China, is so horrifying, it surpasses anything that um, I could have had a nightmare about for a science fiction movie, in terms of the fact that China is doing everything from putting GPS chips on children's school uniforms to monitoring all behavior over uh, internet lines, censoring the internet, limiting information, um, and tracking payments, and in having surveillance cameras at, at a rate that just seemed impossible. And mm-hmm. that kind of government surveillance, which is designed to limit free thought, to limit dissent and control behavior, is, in my mind, uh, uh, terrifying. And the technology to do that is only getting more and more powerful. And what the government is doing today is using new algorithms and artificial intelligence and machine learning in China to produce, um, they call them social scores, but essentially they are uh, government loyalty scores. Uh, they're mm-hmm. rating their citizens on how loyal they are to the government, and then they will give out benefits or punishments based on your scores. That is uh, a big brother nightmare scenario that I think many of us didn't think would actually be happening, but it's happening today in China and a few other jurisdictions. And the challenge for us going forward as technology and innovation develop at a rapid pace is to make sure that kind of mass surveillance and control 
don't spread across the entire globe. Yeah, I mean, what, I think what's so interesting about what you're talking about, I don't know if you've ever seen Black Mirror, but they did an episode that was uh, similar to, and this was years ago, I think it was about three or four years ago, they did an episode on Black Mirror where there was a social ranking system for citizens and based on your social rank. So every single person that you interacted with, if you bought a coffee, yep. if you uh, you know went to the grocery store, everyone that you interacted with could or had to rank you on, on, on an app, on a social ranking app that was curated by the government. And then that dictated the type of loans that you could get, the type of jobs you could get, the, you know, how influential you were in society. And I remember watching that and thinking to myself, like, damn, that is terrifying. Like, that is just like talk about a lack of freedom in, in every which way. Since yeah, so that's not science fiction any longer. That is. Yeah. Not only is it possible and easily implementable, it is taking place in China and, and some other jurisdictions. And it's it's funny. I have. Many people mention Black Mirror to me, and I do not watch it. I, I I try when I have my leisure time for TV to not watch things about uh, issues that tie into my job. So I, I have never seen it. People are shocked, but um, I'd rather watch something a little bit lighter or maybe hockey. Than <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's fair, man. That's very fair. Yeah, because I remember seeing this this like uh, social ranking system being implemented in China, and and how they wanted to have it. They, I think, when I initially read it, they wanted to roll it out in a public way, nation, well, not but countrywide by 2020. They wanted to have it being uh, socially adopted. When when you when when we look at those types of things happening in the world, what's what's the benefit for the government there? Like what what's the sense of control that they are getting out of out of controlling, you know, most of our our senses of privacy, uh, but also like the loyalty aspect back to them. What what are they getting out of it? What is the Chinese government getting? Yeah, complete control. In other words, we factually individuals behave differently when individuals know that their behavior is being monitored 24 seven. So if you know that your emails and your texts and other communications are being monitored and there are consequences to what you say or do not say, then you're going to likely act accordingly. And so if you're a government that does not want any dissent, if you want to control everyone's thoughts and perceptions of reality and not allow for debate, then you impose this kind of surveillance over everybody's ability to communicate. Uh, similarly, it, you know, they don't use cash of any kind any longer in much of China. And in fact, they don't use credit cards. It's all digital payments, which means all of your purchases and payments can be monitored. And so if there's something they want you doing or not doing, they can be monitoring everything that you purchase, where you go, uh, the kinds of doctors you visit. And of course, with GPS and location tracking, the government will know every place you go. Uh, and so if they don't want you at certain meetings or events or locations, uh, they'll know and they'll be able to intervene. And so it's every aspect of your life is being monitored and surveilled through an increasing range of sensors. Uh, through smart cities and the Internet of Things to produce a society that will not uh, object to government policy. It's the antithesis yeah. of everything we believe in here in America. It is the antithesis 
of our, you know, First Amendment and rights to free speech and freedom of assembly. Uh, and it's, it's concerning. And we have to be careful here as well. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, you know, the interesting thing is, is that I was having a conversation with with someone over the holidays and we were talking about Black Mirror actually came up and that specific episode came up and the individual I was talking to, we were talking about this episode and he was like, oh, well, I don't really see the problem with that. You know, like if you're going to if you're going to have it's just gives it just gives more control over making sure that people are behaving properly. And I was I was astounded because I was like, well, that, that actually goes against most of like so many different pieces in the constitution it it takes away you know human freedoms and human rights and i said as as an american like how how can you how can you advocate something like that and so do you ever see or are you concerned about a a time and point in in you know american future where that's even toyed with where an idea like that is even played around with oh for sure look the, the, these concepts to varying degrees, not to the extent that China is engaged, but particularly um, when there's a crisis or a perception about a particular group of people, a lot of ideas are proposed that are troubling. And what we all need to recall and remember is that governments change, right? Um, Certainly, uh, it's not going to shock anyone that I am not aligned with the current administration uh, coming out of President Obama's administration. But, you know, one administration may have concerns about one group. Uh, another administration may have concerns about a different group. And our Constitution and our laws are put in place to ensure that our government, depending on who's there at the moment in time, can't pick and choose which citizens get benefits and which are targeted. And so we don't create databases of people in our nation based on everyone's religion. Uh, and we don't do it based on everyone's race or ethnicity uh, or based on political beliefs. That is not how our country and our government make decisions. Sometimes that seems odd. But when you look over time at how we could or have rounded people up for reasons that uh, history proves are wrong, that is, in fact, the right way to approach um, democracy. And so, you know, even and I've I've I have said no. and. The Obama White House has stopped stopped many projects that I would say well-intentioned individuals crafted with good intentions without appreciating the potential unintended consequences of a particular kind of data collection, database, or surveillance. And so we need to ensure that we have people. And by the way, my job has never been filled in this White House, so I was never replaced. But we need individuals who can say. Um, I understand your objective, but creating that kind of database with that kinds of data um, is not what we do here. And whether it's keeping track of, you know, the kinds of pornography that adults are watching or how many hours or minutes of adult entertainment and what kinds and what is your niche kind of adult entertainment or um, do we think you're having an affair? Do we think you are depressed? You know, we could keep track of your emotions if we wanted to based on what you post. So we need to have those limits. Yeah, that that I mean, the the last the last part of that statement is so interesting, right? Because I think and and I just I actually want to touch on that for a second, because I think that most people don't necessarily understand 
the the ramifications of data collection because they're just like, oh, well, it's just my information, right? It's just like, it's just where I live and, you know, my no, phone no, no, number, no. my my email address. And so can can you just touch on a little bit more on the last part of that statement around, you know, we, we can tell based on what you're posting, based on what people are posting, uh, companies that are collecting their data can tell how they're feeling. What goes into that? Like algorithm, like from the algorithms and from right. the from the privacy side like what so, actually goes into that i mean but even before i get to that and i will touch on that mm -hmm. you know the, the, the and many data brokers third-party data brokers that have profiles on american consumers they have excess of 500 data points on all of us when, when you think about that it's, it's sometimes difficult to envision what is so interesting about me but it, it's everything from um my name address uh age gender to where I live now, where I have lived previously, um, my socioeconomic status, my likely income, all the things I've purchased in the past. Do I own a car? Do I own a boat? Do I own a home? Am I likely to want to purchase a home in the future? Am I married? Am I divorced? How many children do I have? Is uh, Maybe am I contemplating another child? Uh, it, it is a really extensive set of data that even before we get into algorithms can be collected on each of us and then used for a variety of purposes. Uh, the topic about the emotions is also is, is nothing really new, and I'm not suggesting it's it's being widely used, but the capability exists, and we know that. And in fact, um, Facebook had done a study exactly on this. But you can use an algorithm um, to determine a person's uh, sort of emotional state or mood based on what you post and what you click on and where you go online. And it's just not that difficult using an algorithm to interpret uh, whether or not at a certain given time you are happy or sad, or if you're a marketer, you can determine what time of day an individual is most likely to make a purchase versus most likely to view something and then walk away and not close a transaction. All of that is being done today by using data collection machine learning and algorithms to pinpoint um, when during a day or a month or point in time a given individual is most likely to make a purchase versus not complete the transaction. There are stories today where you can, based on what people post, determine whether or not they likely are depressed, have a mental health issue, and maybe even you can get an indication as to whether they're suicidal based on things they're posting which then tees up some very complicated issues for companies in society, which is, okay, well, if a social media platform identifies online behavior that's indicative of suicide, well, what do we want Facebook to do with that? What do we want the government to do with that? Uh, do we want employers to know that? I don't know. Maybe it depends on who you are. But, but again, that is the kind of data and analysis collection and, and that can be done. And when inferences have potentially serious consequences for our lives about whether or not we get employment or health benefits or the terms of a loan, those kinds of algorithms, machine learning, uh, that kind of artificial intelligence presents some pretty serious challenges for our society in the future to ensure that they are not misused, they're not abused, they don't have implicit bias. Uh, and they don't produce incorrect results that we can't resolve. So interesting. I mean, it's it's almost like, uh, I mean, these issues these issues have become such 
huge and complex moral moral issues, right? Yeah. Because while one while one person might you know might be okay with in terms of yeah, if I'm you know if Facebook recognizes that uh, you know whatever John Doe is depressed. John might say, yeah, it's fine for them to notify health authorities to, you know, come and help me. And other people are like, no, just leave me alone. Uh, that's that's an infringement on, you know, my 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 freedom. It's a constitutional uh, break. And so how like from your perspective, having been, you know, in By the way, in I just position, want to point out that. Yeah, um, this may not be obvious, but or maybe and I apologize if it is, but the Constitution only applies to the government. And so. Mm -hmm. When Facebook or Google collect data and use it, the Constitution is not relevant to that discussion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think I think that's that's a really great point because I think that's um, part of the challenges that a lot of people have been grappling with around, you know, the the you know the Cambridge Analytica data discussion and the, the scandal that happened there with Facebook and um, just some of these other pieces when it comes to personal data and privacy on a commercial level, which it seems like we're transitioning into but but before we before we do that i'm just curious to get your take having been on the inside of these conversations where like how do we at a at a group level at a larger societal level start to have these moral discussions with our government um and and from your perspective where do we actually start that like how, how does that begin uh so there is one really simple thing that a lot of people can do and they don't do or appreciate the value, but let your congressmen and senators know that you have views on these issues. I, I will tell you that um, I also work in, in the Congress um, and with congressmen, uh, and many of them would say, you know, I know we read about privacy in the news all the time, but none of my constituents are calling me about privacy. They'll call me about taxes and they'll call me about uh, the local post office isn't working very well. Um, but none of my constituents call me to say they are concerned about government overreach on surveillance or commercial privacy. And until I until my constituents tell me they care, I'm not going to put resources here. And so there really is some value in in letting your elected representatives at state and federal level know that, hey, this is important, that I'm concerned about the directions we're going in, and I expect you as my elected official to take this seriously uh, and really scrutinize government and, and commercial practices. Do you think that it's a, a matter of not knowing? Like I, I think about, and I'm, I'm sure my dad would be okay with this, but I think about like somebody like my dad, who's very interested in politics, who's very, you know, and, and, and maybe just my parents in general, um, and some of the people that are in their age bracket, when it comes to things like privacy, it's just they just don't seem to know. They don't seem to have the know-how, right? Like they're they're just grappling with being able to use their iPhone or being able to like use their computer. And so the idea of of data collection on this level seems very abstract in some ways. So do you, do you see the understanding of the issue as being part of the problem? It certainly is. I think that. And I would actually say that we will look back on 2018 as the year that privacy became a mainstream issue. That may shock you, mm. but I've been in this space for over 15 years. There have been many incidents over time, but it, it really was 2018 for a variety of reasons, including changes in laws in Europe and California and Cambridge Analytica and a number of high profile data breaches where privacy is reaching um, 
mainstream media and a lot of individuals, and we're seeing interest both sides of the of the aisle here in Washington. So I do think it's becoming more mainstream and more common to understand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's such a it's such a huge and broad issue. So let's let's go a little bit into commercial privacy and 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 then you know I'd love to get into some of your your personal habits and and views towards the end of the conversation having you know as a as a dad and just some of the things that you're talking about with your new project and and your podcast their own devices um and and so we'll we'll definitely touch on some of those pieces and and maybe leave people towards the end of this conversation with tactical things that they can do and and understanding but let's let's gear a little bit towards uh, commercial privacy so uh, first, first and foremost, with social media, you know, taking over people's lives and uh, their privacy is as individuals on those platforms has, has shifted quite a bit. Just in a in a vague sense, what do people need to know about their privacy when it comes to social media platforms? So there are, there are a wide range of of social media platforms, uh, and so there there are, will be some differences between them. Um, whether we're talking about a Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter. Uh, and, you know, the privacy policies are, are often challenging to understand and certainly time consuming. But so it's important to understand that we put in data about ourselves. And that is only a small part of ultimately what social media platforms have about us. And so, for example, uh, when we post things on Facebook, that information we obviously is out there, but it is through algorithms and other data collection that more and more inferences are created about us that allow Facebook to make predictions about our behavior, purchases, interests, uh, and the like. And so, for example, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I use it. And you can view my posts, but also uh, the algorithm will take into account the things my friends post and their profiles to make inferences about me and my interests, my demographics, in order to um, provide information to third parties to produce targeted advertising uh, in my newsfeed uh, as hyper-targeted as possible to try and produce the result that the advertiser wants, whether it's for me to subscribe to something, purchase something, learn about an event, uh, uh, what have you. But uh, you add to that, particularly if you use uh, a mobile app, uh, version of Facebook, uh, the fact that they will have your precise geolocation over time everywhere you go. Uh, and then if you use it as a feature to log into other services, which I never do, um, they will also obtain data from those services like all of your contacts or your calendar uh, or videos or photos. And and so that kind of data put together um, and then analyzed with artificial intelligence and machine learning produces incredibly accurate and often highly sensitive inferences and predictions about us. And people may not like hearing this, but we're not that complicated. I'm sure we all like to think we are highly unique and very individualistic, but the fact is um, these algorithms know more about us than we know about ourselves and can predict with a high degree of accuracy um, how we will respond to a certain message, uh, what our likely uh, decisions will be. And similarly, there are features within all social media platforms that are intentionally designed to produce a certain outcome. And so even when we have choice, um, those choices are carefully crafted 
to direct individuals towards a certain uh, outcome or answer based on a variety of things. You know, the way we design the, the user interface, uh, the way we set defaults, uh, what we expect you to do or not do to make something occur or not occur. So there's a, a tremendous amount of work that goes into every feature within a platform uh, to produce optimal results for the platform. It's not that we do have, we certainly have choices, whether they could be more straightforward or easier to use or simplified, we could debate for a long time. But, but there are a lot of features within the design, within the data collected, not only from what we provide, but from where we go, how we surf online, what our friends do, um, that produce tremendous data that then produce inferences. So, I mean, I think one of the questions that comes up for me is, you know, and this is this is sort of like your personal preference or your your personal opinion, but should people simply be okay with sharing the majority of their data? Because I think I think most people they're like there's sort of there's sort of like a few different camps on this, right? One is sort of okay, I don't really care; it doesn't really matter if people know me. It's like this nice convenience because the type of shoes or jeans that I want to buy often show up in my Facebook news feed as you know the because I'm I'm being targeted. Um, but should people be more cautious with with their online data? So again, that's going to be in the, every individual's personal perspective. Uh, mm -hmm. I love technology. My house is totally wired. I would be embarrassed to tell you how many MacBooks, laptops, and iPads I'm looking at right now. Um, <laughs> not to mention my Wii and PS4 and what's in my kids' rooms. Uh, and so I'm not a technophobe. I love tech. I love innovation. Uh, but I also am someone who uses my privacy settings. And so my iPhone has privacy settings. I do not allow location to be enabled or tracked. I never let an app access my calendar or my contacts. I do not use Facebook on my mobile phone. I use it on a computer or a laptop. Uh, and so I make decisions about that. I I don't interact with random games and surveys on social media that are there exclusively to collect data. It looks fun, but they have a purpose. I don't personally do that. Uh, and it also comes down to uh, different areas. And so I've worked with industry for years, and I actually like digital advertising, and I find it interesting and, and useful in most cases. Uh, I am very different. I have a different feeling about health data. Uh, and it really concerns me when inferences are made about my likely physical or mental health based on where I'm going online. I think we need to have special rules, and we don't in this country. Uh, and that's really a problem. So I think in the areas of health, I think in areas around sexual orientation, preference, identity, or habits, however you want to characterize it, um, ought to be uh, have separate laws and be off limits as well. Uh, I think we need laws about the use of our precise location information because we don't today. It's an awful gap in our laws. And companies can create and infer highly sensitive data about all of us based on where we go, uh, whether it's our political views, our likely health issues, are we pregnant, are we, what is uh, our religion? And I think that we need to get a handle on how precise location data is is collected from our devices because it's not going to just one or two entities. It can be going to dozens of entities. Uh, and I personally have an issue with that. And so it, it yeah. comes down to the kinds of data that's being collected and used. 
Um, I love ads about cars and I love ads about uh, sports events or concerts in D.C. Uh, I am less pleased when an ad is trying to infer uh, my health issues or other things in personal areas. Hmm. Okay. And so out, out of that, so first and foremost, why uh, one of the things that was curious for me is how come you don't use voice Facebook on your phone? Because I think that might give some some context uh, to the next question. Uh, that goes into location tracking, and um, it goes into uh, just personal preference. Um, I, I use my phone for more limited things than some other people do, and I'm sensitive around uh, location tracking. So uh, I don't log on there, and I also do not ever use Facebook uh, as a mechanism to log into another service. Got it. Got it. Okay. So let's, let's just go down that path a little bit. Cause I think that that's something that I'm, I'm curious, but I think that other people are curious about. So let's say you use Facebook to log into another service, um, whether it's, you know, to play one of those, one of those goofy games or, you know, get which game of Thrones character you are, like whatever that is, what can that, that company that now has acquired your data, what can they do with that information? So there, that tees up a, a wide range of issues um, that are not constant. So it, it depends on what the terms of use are between that service and Facebook, what Facebook is allowing them to access. It could depend on what you're consenting to when you interact with the service. Uh, how obvious is it that the service needs certain kinds of information? Uh, and so it tees up all of those issues around and like that, you know, that was the issue with Cambridge Analytica, right? You had an app that was, I believe, allegedly a, uh, a survey of some kind. I forget exactly what the app was, but no one contemplated that the data being collected was being sent to a company to analyze political beliefs. And no one, you know, it also was able to collect data about friends of people who logged in, which is particularly outrageous because in that context, I never interacted with a particular app, but the app was able to collect data about me because one of my friends did. And so those kinds of things evolve over time. Facebook makes changes. They make improvements. Uh, but again, it, it's just you, you won't know on any given situation uh, what kind of data is being collected and then exactly how will that information be used. And so I, I just approach it again I am on every social media platform, so I'm not discouraging the use of platforms. I love them. I like watching YouTube videos. I post, but I also take that additional step of trying to understand um, and limit to some extent the, the scope of data collection and use um, while also understanding how the data can be used and reading things online with skepticism, a grain of salt, and understanding you know, when something appears, why it appeared, um, and not, um, you know, believing everything I say. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good. <laughs> um, great. I mean, I think that gives some good context into what's happening with the data and, and, uh, you know, how, not only how it's being collected, but, but some of the ramifications of, of where it can be used. Let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, Cause I'm, I'm really curious, you know, about your personal journey, you know, being being a father and being a dad and, and seeing technology being used by your kids, it sounds like that was a really impactful uh, thing for you in your life. And tell me a little bit about how you see the future generation um, merging with technology and, and maybe just some of your concerns around, uh, uh, you know, our, our kids and their use with technology and privacy. 
Yeah. So again, uh, I left the White House in January of 17, just as my son uh, was becoming 12. Uh, he's now 13. Uh, and again, I love tech. And so it's not surprising that there's a lot in my home. But I also come from this background where um, I understand data collection and use. Um, I understand concepts like delete doesn't mean delete. Digital data is forever. Uh, you know, those those basic concepts. And what I was observing. Can I, can I, can I yeah. pause you there? Sure. Why, so just just for the average person, why is digital data forever? Like when you say delete is not delete, can you just expand on that a little bit before moving on? Oh, yeah. I mean, it depends on context. But uh, the way I explain it to my son is uh, if you don't want to see this in 10 years, don't put it online. Because once you post something on the Internet, you have lost control and it will come back and it will resurface. So whether you lose control because the data is stored not just on your device locally, but in the cloud or on a, on a company server or because you sent it to one friend and that friend took a photo of it or a screenshot or a video of it or saved it for future use, you don't know. Uh, whether you know it is temporarily stored in a place on your computer that isn't obvious that I could access with free software or free mm. computer forensic software. And so uh, delete isn't delete. Um, and private browsing mode isn't private. Uh, and, and understanding those ramifications is absolutely critical for anyone on the internet, but particularly kids who are 10, 11, up to 16, 17, who don't have this fully developed frontal lobe. Look, we were all teenagers. I did stupid things too. Um, you know, teenagers are programmed to take stupid risks. They don't lack, they lack judgment. They don't have the ability to understand long-term consequences of what they do today. And they often don't understand that their online actions can have offline consequences. And then you add this other component to teenagers and devices, which is that teenagers will do things, say things, post things online because they're looking at a screen that they would never do or say to somebody in a face-to-face -face interaction. There's this impersonal nature of sending a post on my smartphone or device when I'm not looking at a person, when it doesn't feel like a, a human interaction that kids wouldn't do in person. Yeah. So you, com you combine all of those factors. And what it means and suggests to me is that parents today need to be engaged. And this, this notion that I continually see, and this is not a popular thing to say as a dad, although I've been talking to lots of dads about things they're freaking out about now. Um, we can get into that. But, but what I'd like to see is before you hand your kid their new iPhone X or iPhone 10 or whatever device, before you give it to them, have a discussion. And you're handing them essentially a pocket-sized supercomputer with dozens of sensors and the ability to download a wide range of content and apps and interface with the world on a 24-7 connected basis. So before you do that, sit down with your kid boy or girl, whatever age, and, and by the way, age is a factor here, but everyone should judge that for themselves, and talk about whatever your personal values are. Like I constantly tell my son, if you wouldn't do it offline, don't do it online just because you can't see the person, like end of story. Like you, your values and what's right and wrong doesn't change because you're staring at a screen. Discussions like, you know, the ramifications of posting and that delete doesn't mean delete. Um, that 
even on Snapchat, snaps don't necessarily disappear. And there, you can do a screen capture and mm-hmm. it can resurface. You know, interacting with strangers, all, all of those issues are the kinds of things that parents should be discussing. And parents should understand the tech their kids are using. And, and so, you know, I have parents who have given their 11-year-olds, you know, in, accounts on Instagram and said, like, what's the big deal? It just lets you post and delete photos without ever understanding all the features on Instagram, um, FaceTime and video chat and group chat. Uh, all those are on Instagram today, and parents don't know that. And so it's it's about parents getting a little more active and engaged and, and being online with our kids because essentially what I want is, like, some people say, you know, run from tech, don't embrace it, keep you at your home as long as possible. That is not my message because, like, I love it. My message is, like, we need to help our kids navigate these issues and have a really safe, healthy, and positive interaction with technology. And we want to have those discussions before our kids are sexting, which, by the way, is a huge freaking issue now. Yeah. Um, or cyberbullying, whether the victims or the bullier or posting things that they didn't intend to or they'll regret. And then there are other issues around, you know, playing Fortnite too late at night and not getting enough sleep and screwing up in school. So it's about intelligent use of tech and it's about being an engaged dad and having those conversations. So, and, and reasonable parents can disagree and that's great. And every family is different. Every kid is different. But we should all start with some baseline understanding of what our kids can or can't do and sort of some rules for the the digital road. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's such good insight. And there, uh, there's there's a big body of research being done now with, I think it's like 11,000 kids here in the States where it's, it's uh, testing to see what the actual neurological impact of technology is on a child's brain. And, you know, I, I used to work at Apple and it used to boggle my mind when I'd be in a, in a retail store and I would see, you know, a couple of parents strolling in, their kids in a stroller. The, the kid's not even old enough to walk, but it's got an iPhone or an iPad in its hand. And, I, you know, I kept thinking to myself, that can't be good. You know, like it, it can't be right. good socially, neurologically. And now some of the studies are starting to come out and showing that, you know, kids in their in their early years, you know, basically uh, a lot of the data is showing that under the age of six or seven, but specifically between two to four and five, using technology for a couple hours a day, which a lot of kids are doing now, is actually um, having a significant impact on their uh, frontal cortex development, on the, the layer um, on the frontal cortex that that has to do with uh, social interaction, which has to do with understanding how to how to interact with with other people, language development, uh, spatial awareness. Like it's really interesting to see the impact of this. So, when you uh, like, how did you actually end up broaching the the conversation with your son, and 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 maybe a little bit of of insight on how did you have this conversation with with your partner? Because I would imagine that that's also an, an integral part. Is is being aligned as parents before having this conversation. Yeah. So I also want to uh, put out there that I don't want to suggest that like I'm a perfect parent. Because yeah. A lot of it is really difficult. And I, I just like, I'll just give you an example. You know, I, I, I distinctly remember when my son was like one years old and like there was this new set of CDs out called like baby Einstein. They were being pitched as like, okay, 
these toys run around the room and we play Bach and Einstein. It will help the kids develop, which turns out to not be true. But, you know, this, the recommendations of the American Academy of Pediatrics were something like kids under two should not be in front of screens. And I remember it's like, okay, I have a work call and we need to make dinner. So you, you can be sure that we plopped our kid in front of a TV with a CD in it and, and a whole range of things that are suboptimal, but like we have to be practical and no one's looking for perfection. Um, and there are other things I've done that like, no, not ideal parenting, but, but it's, it's real, like, it's just conversations are really important. Um, consistency, setting limits. Uh, it's not even so much about screen time as what your kids are doing on screens. And there's a big difference between, um, you know, my son's school gave every kid a Chromebook and he does a lot of his homework on the Chromebook and that's great. And that's a use of a screen versus, um, three hours of binge watching on YouTube, which his favorite thing to watch is other people playing video games and other guys playing Fortnite. Like, okay, I'm, I'm good on that for a little bit, but uh, I'm not good if you think you're going to do that for three hours on YouTube. Never going to happen. So, so it's understanding what they're doing. It's also understanding when they're doing it and stopping them at a certain time before bedtime. Because mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of evidence now about sleep deprivation and the impact on sleep. Uh, which then impacts everything your kid tries to do the next day, whether it's athletics or school or academics, um, there's an impact on sleep. Uh, so it's just trying to understand all of that, not be um, completely authoritarian and a total jerk, although I'm, I'm a pretty strict dad uh, by comparison with some others. But it's it's really about having that conversation. And we've talked about cyberbullying, um, what I think that is, what is appropriate ways to text um, others and observing when others are being inappropriate about things like that. We've talked about sexting already because um, notwithstanding the fact that he's 13, it's far more prevalent in middle school than I ever thought. Um, And, you know, the consequences of that can be dramatic. And so, so it's just trying to do all that. Um, It sounds great. It's harder than it sounds. Uh, I'm not going to say that my conversations are also are, are always like perfect and eloquent. And I'd love to tell you I'm always calm and just, you know, but sometimes I'm not, you know, so, so, but it, it's being engaged and trying and understanding what's important to them too. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's so good, right? I mean, this, this conversation is so important. It's something that, you know, as my, so I, I'm getting married in April, but as my fiance get closer to getting married and then having kids later on, um, you know, something that we've been talking about is how do we want to raise our kids with technology around? Because we've we've seen the gamut, right? We have friends that you know their their one and a half year old, one year old has has a device in front of her all the time, and then you know other friends who uh, their their kids aren't allowed to be around screens until they're seven years old, and they do the best that they can to to really make sure that they have the proper development without screens in, until a very certain age. And so it's it's interesting because it's become this uh, main stage conversation that needs to yeah. now happen yeah. in in parenting, and and it's such an interesting dynamic of of doing a little bit of research, figuring out where your values are, what's moral, and I, I think the the more interesting thing is that I think so many parents that haven't had this conversation are shocked when they find out and discover. Um, you know, what their children are actually doing with their phones. Like I, I spoke at a, 
six, 600 kid, all boy, all boy, military college prep high school, uh, a, a few months ago in outside of Minneapolis. And it was really interesting because there was a bunch of parents in, you know, it, watching when I was speaking to these boys and I, I got onto the subject of porn and I got onto the subject of sexting. And when, when the slide changed to the word porn, all the boys, pretty much all 600 of them started cheering. And so many of the parents came up to me after and they're like, my son is 13. Like, how does he know about this? What's, what's going on? Like, I'm concerned oh, that, God, are you, kidding? you know, yeah. and I'm like, yeah, like your kid, uh, in, inevitably, like he's got the iPhone, you bought him the iPhone. Uh, if you haven't set so, any parameters, yeah. he's probably got, he's probably on there. This is exactly what I talk about on their own devices, all these issues. Um, and in fact, uh, the next episode of their own devices, and I don't know when this airs, but it will be up. Um, we interviewed two high school boys to talk about sexting mm. because, you know, it's one thing you read studies and everyone thinks it's not my kid, right? It's not, it can't be my kid. So we interviewed two high school students, um, really smart college oriented kids, athletes, um, about their perspectives on sexting, which would be sending and receiving nude photos of other kids. And by other kids, I mean... <laughs> The kids are 13, 14, and 15. So um, depending on what state you're in, the age of consent could be anywhere from 16 to 18. But I'm talking about like even middle school. And it is so prevalent, I was stunned. And not that much shocks me given my past profession and jobs. I couldn't believe it. And these kids view it as absolutely normal behavior. It is part of being a high school student in 2019. Uh, they don't view it as odd. It is boys and girls. It is all kinds of photos. It is even videos of things that I'm not going to discuss now because I can't believe 14 year olds would do this, but they are. Um, and it was really illuminating for me. And I think parents will be, um, rather surprised when they hear these kids talk about how routine they feel it is in 2019. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 yeah, it's so good. I feel like we could go on and on about this topic, but, um, um, you know, I think it's almost time to wrap up here. And I, you know, I feel like we could have hours of dialogue on this and do like the Joe Rogan style two and a half hour podcast, but, um, maybe give the, the audience a little bit of a, uh, understanding around your podcast, their own devices. And, um, it sounds like it's going to shed a little bit of light on, on the challenges of, of, you know, parents raising yeah, you, so the YouTube gen. Yeah, so this is not something I had planned to do, but again, it, it just evolved out of all these discussions with other parents and dads. Uh, and so uh, we've, we launched in November of 2018. So I only have seven episodes up, episode eight's coming up. Um, and in those eight episodes, we've hit on a lot of these issues um, around screen time, social media use, fake social media accounts to avoid parents, parental controls, uh, cyberbullying, sexting, and the approach we're taking, we have a guest on every show, but we're not bringing on experts and like wonks who just do research. We're having on teenagers and parents. You know, we had on an engineer from Google who actually walked us through how features are put into apps to get kids addicted. Uh, so we're trying to bring on a really diverse range of guests. And we want it to be this kind of like engaging feel like you're sitting with us at our kitchen table, having a beer or coffee, talking about these pretty complicated issues. 
And what's cool is that I bring my experience with privacy and cybersecurity and tech to the show, but uh, my co-host brings is a, is a doctor at Georgetown University Medical Center in the Department of Adolescent Medicine. And so he looks at these issues from a mental health and development perspective around uh, anxiety, sleep deprivation, uh, addiction, problematic media use, and talks about you know, why some of these behaviors that shock us actually from an adolescent's perspective make total sense because that's developmentally where their brain is. They're not going to exercise the best judgment. And so mom and dad, you should understand the adolescent mind before you hand them an iPhone 10 with all of these apps on it. And you shouldn't be stunned when your 13-year-old does things that you think are absurd if you didn't talk to them about it. So that's really what we're getting at. Um, we try to make it uh, really engaging and sometimes entertaining. Some of the topics get more serious than I had thought. Um, but uh, we try and do it in a way that is like no one's lecturing. It's really a conversation of moms and dads and kids and experts talking about the real world challenges that we are all grappling with today. And again, our goal is not to get anyone to say like no phones, no devices, no tech. It's like, let's talk with our kids and let's figure out a way for our children to grow up in this digital world, but have a really healthy, positive and safe relationship with the digital world um, and not find out, not, not start engaging after it's a problem, which you, know, you already pointed out. That is often when moms and dads call us yeah. and like, you won't believe what's on my kid's phone. And I'll say, yeah, I do, um, particularly <laughs> if you've never had that conversation. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, look, man, I think um, this because we got to wrap up here. I'm gonna. I would love to have you back on the show here in a couple months and actually dig into that specific topic around how we can support our kids. Uh, I know that there's a lot of mothers and fathers uh, or soon to be out there that are very, very interested in this conversation. So I'd love to have you back on in a few months and, and dig into that specifically. Uh, but for the rest, for the rest of the listeners that are out there, definitely head on over uh, and, and check out Mark's new podcast. We'll have the link in the show notes. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for joining me on the show. My pleasure. And I'd love to come back and, and continue our discussion. Awesome. Wonderful. So for everybody that's out there, definitely check out Mark's uh, latest podcast. Uh, and don't forget to share this podcast episode with just one person it goes a long way to getting us into the ears and on the phones of other people. Uh, and uh, until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join us next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm -hmm.